Let's now open our Bibles to Hebrews 10, 26 to 31. Hebrews 10, 26 to 31. Today's verses will be verses 28 and 29. Asking the question, whose penalty is worse? Whose penalty is worse? Moses' penalty or Jesus' penalty? Whose penalty is worse? <coughs> Hebrews 10, 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that this word is true. It's holy. It's righteous. It's perfect. It is good. It is the word of truth. It is the word of our salvation. It's the word of grace. We thank you, Father, that by this word we are saved. So we ask you now, because of this true word, that you would minister to us, that your Holy Spirit would be present, and that you will build us up in the faith, and anyone who is unsaved will turn from sin and turn to Christ. We pray, Father, that we will understand the greatness of this gospel and the solemnity of the gospel, the obligation we have not to turn away from this true gospel of Christ, lest we perish forever. So, Father, may it not be that anyone is lost, but we all are saved. In Christ's name, amen. When we think about this subject of whose penalty is worse, Moses or Jesus, we have certain common statements that have been made over the years. There are many people who think, within Christian churches, many people think the following. They have said things such as, the Old Testament is a harsh testament. Before the book of Matthew, from Genesis to Malachi, it's very harsh, it's very cruel. The God of the Old Testament is quite impatient. The God of the Old Testament, he punishes people immediately. He has no mercy on people. The God of the Old Testament is actually a different God than the God of the New Testament. In the New Testament, there is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but there is no Father, Son, Holy Spirit, or Trinity in the Old Testament, only in the New. We have different gods. We have a God who is loving and patient and kind and compassionate in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, he's cruel. He's very severe. He is very austere. He has high expectations. In the New Testament, he does not have the same expectations. In fact, he is lax, and he is like a Santa Claus or a grandfather in the sky, 
who allows the grandchildren to behave however, and he leaves the discipline to someone else, like the father of the children. That's the way people look at the God of the Bible, or the issues of the Old Testament and the New Testament. They say, Jesus is gentle, he's kind, he's long-suffering, he never gets angry, he never punishes, he never speaks of hell, he is always loving, and he always bends over backwards for people. In fact, Jesus is so loving, there is no hell. Jesus is so loving that there is no lake of fire. Jesus is so loving that there is no eternal punishment, they say. No, 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 no. That is for those fundamentalists to believe. That's for a previous generation, people who misunderstood the Bible. But Jesus, the true Jesus, he's long-suffering. He never is wrathful. He never speaks of hell. There is no eternal punishment. There is no lake of fire and torment for unbelievers. That's what they think of Jesus. But is that picture, is that picture a true picture of the Bible? Is it a true picture of the God of the Bible? Is it a true picture of salvation? Is it a true picture of Jesus Christ himself? The answer is no to all of those questions. The answer is a definitive, absolute no to all of those questions. Absolutely no. In fact, that's what our passage is teaching. Our passage is teaching that the answer is no. Whose penalty is worse? The answer of this passage is Christ's penalty is worse. The gospel's penalty is worse than the penalty of Moses. Yes. Firstly, quickly in verses 26 and 27, just to recap what we have already studied. This passage is addressing people who hear the gospel, and it is calling on them not to reject the gospel. Fundamentally, it's calling on them not to reject the gospel of Christ, the true and living God, the true and living way of salvation in Jesus Christ. That's what this passage is teaching, not to reject the gospel of Christ, whoever hears. Because the reality is, of all the people who hear the gospel, some people truly believe it, Other people pretend to believe it. They either deceive themselves or they are maliciously deceptive for whatever purposes they have to be in the assembly of Christians. They are there. Some people are false brothers, false brethren, as it says in Galatians 2.2, who sneak into the assembly. And then there are others who are just ignorant, they don't know any better, they are in the assembly and they hear the gospel, they think they're Christians but they're not really Christians and they need to be told, they need to be explained what it means to be a true Christian. So he's saying to the people who hear this gospel, none of you should ever turn away from that gospel. None of you should continue on in your sin and pretend that you are okay with God or you are reconciled to God, you are in harmony with God. That's what he's teaching here. He's not teaching that somebody can possess true salvation and lose salvation. He's teaching that there are people who can be apostates. That is, they might think that they are okay with God, but they're really not, and they better think about their own salvation, and they better embrace the true gospel of Christ and not fall away from that gospel of Christ. That's what he means in verse 26. 
For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, do not continue going on sinning willfully against the gospel of Christ. The knowledge of the truth is the gospel of Christ. Don't go on sinning willfully because if you do, contrary to the gospel, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Christ's sacrifice on the cross is the only sacrifice that can pay the penalty for your sins. So do not believe, do not live contrary to that gospel of Christ. Going on sinning willfully, on and on and on. Repent of that sin instead. Because if you don't repent, verse 27 says, there is a certain, absolute, definitive, terrifying, horrible, frightening expectation of judgment. That's the only thing that awaits. Only judgment waits, meaning eternal judgment. Eternal punishment is the only thing that awaits. And it is the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. That is, God's fiery fury, God's fiery anger, fiery wrath, blazing wrath against sinners, against his adversaries, his enemies, against his foes, God's fire, anger, will burn against them. And as we know in other places, it will last forever and ever. It's an eternal punishment. That's the only thing. So either it's Christ or there is judgment. There is either Christ or there is eternal punishment. That's all that there is. Those are the two choices. Now, is... Now, speaking of the severity or the penalty of this, this might sound unusual to you. It might sound harsh to you. And in fact, you might have misunderstood the differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So he clarifies. He clarifies. Verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses, anyone of the people of Israel, he's saying, who lived under the law of Moses, anyone who sets that aside, meaning who treats it casually, that they can treat it flippantly, that they don't need to take it seriously, they can set it aside, disobey it, transgress it, move on and do something else. They know clearly what it says, but they live contrary to it. They say, no, I don't want to believe that. I want to do it this other way. And specifically, he has in mind, that is, denying the gospel of Christ. If one denied the gospel of Christ in the Old Testament, under the law of Moses, and he went and followed other gods, because if you don't follow the true God in Christ, you follow other gods. And if you follow other gods, the only thing that awaits is death. And specifically, what was it that Moses could do? What was the worst thing that Moses could do in the law of Moses against those who refused the gospel of Christ and worshipped other gods? What was the worst thing he could do? It says here, dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. That is, the transgressor of the law 
who rejected the gospel of Christ and worshipped other gods would have a physical death, a physical penalty. He would be stoned to death for worshipping a false god, for worshipping idols, for being just like all of the other nations and all of the other cultures all around them and living like them and worshipping gods the way they do. They would die physically without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. It wasn't happening willy-nilly. It was not happening with false trials. It was happening through careful investigation, through careful trials, through careful judgment by two or three witness at, at, witnesses at the least who would witness the fact that so-and-so worships a false god, so-and-so denies the gospel of Christ, therefore he deserves the death penalty. So that would happen thoroughly, it would happen carefully, and then there would be the death penalty, the physical death penalty. That was the worst thing Moses could do to a person. That was the worst thing, the death penalty, physical death. Now what passage does our apostle have in mind? I believe he has Deuteronomy chapter 17 in mind. Let's see an example of what he is talking about. Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy 17, verses 2 to 7. Deuteronomy 17, 2. If there is found in your midst, in any of your towns, which the Lord your God is giving you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, by transgressing his covenant, and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun, or the moon, or any of the heavenly hosts, which I have not commanded. And if it is told you, and you have heard of it, then you shall inquire thoroughly. And behold, if it is true in the thing certain that this detestable thing has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out that man or that woman who has done this evil deed to your gates, that is, the man or the woman, and you shall stone them to death. On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. This is an example of apostasy. This is an example of denying the true God in Christ, in the gospel of Christ, and following false gods. Idols of wood and stone, or idols that are in the heavenly bodies, in outer space, the sun, moon, or the stars, worshiping them. And if this were done, then it should be investigated thoroughly, as it says in verse 4. Inquire thoroughly, and then in verse 6, on the evidence of two or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. Then there would be the death penalty, if one apostatized like this. So, this is an example. Now, when people see this, they see this example of apostasy, and there's the death penalty. People also see what happened with the great flood 
in the time of the great flood in Noah's day, people see that all kinds of people all over the world, they died physically in a flood, right? They died like that. And they are horrified. How could God do that? How could God put an idolater to death? And how could God destroy the whole world like that in that physical way in the time of Noah? Or let's read in Genesis 19 of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were practicing sexual sin and God rained fire and brimstone upon the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and they died there. They died physically. They see that and they're horrified. How could God do that? I thought God is loving. No, this, this God of the Old Testament, he's harsh and cruel. He kills people just like that. Physically kills people just like that. Or in the time of Moses in Numbers chapter 15, somebody was breaking the Sabbath day and he knew better not to break the Sabbath day. Then when he was discovered, he was investigated thoroughly and then God said he deserves to be executed. So he was executed. People say that's harsh and cruel. That's unloving. God's impatient. He's not long-suffering with the people. He just broke the Sabbath and you're putting him to death for that? They see these kinds of examples in the Old Testament. And they say, this God, he's really bad. He's really evil. He's really harsh and cruel. He's unloving and impatient. Who can put up with a God like that? But his argument here in our letter in Hebrews is the worst death, if you think about it in just the physical terms, the worst death was the physical death. That's the worst thing that Moses could do to the man in Numbers 15 who broke the Sabbath or to the idolater in Deuteronomy 17 who apostatized, who worshiped false gods, the worst thing Moses could do was put the man to death physically. That was the worst thing. And you are appalled at that. You are stunned at that. You are amazed and confused. How could God do that? Is that God a true God? Or is he a petty God? Is he a capricious God? Is he a, a, a God who is willy-nilly and does things on a whim? Is that the way that God is? We think of God that way, and we criticize that. However, he's saying, have you considered, verse 29, Hebrews 10, 29, have you considered how much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? Verse 29, how much severer punishment? How much severe punishment? There is a severe punishment. Have you not thought about that? Have you not considered the severer punishment? Which Punishment is worse. Which punish, punishment is more severe? The one that Moses instituted, that is physical death for idolatry. Or the severer punishment for the one who tramples the Son of God underfoot, regards as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has insulted the Spirit of grace. Which punishment is more severe? Well, he's teaching us here, here in the New Testament. In the New Testament, here in the letter to the Hebrews, he's teaching us that this punishment, the rejection of Christ, is worse. It's more severe. It's more tormenting. Why? 
because it lasts forever. Yeah. It's eternal punishment. It's being thrown into hell, into the lake of fire. That is a severe punishment. Sure. Who cannot see that? Who cannot realize that? Is a temporal, physical punishment worse than an eternal punishment? No. No, of course, that's absurd. We can understand that eternal punishment is more severe than temporal punishment. So if we disregard, if we set aside, if we reject, if we walk away from, if we do lip service to the gospel of Christ, that punishment is more severe. Now, this is not the only place where this kind of statement is made. Within the same letter, let's see how he has been saying this again and again. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2, verse 1. Hebrews 2, 1. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, there he's talking about Moses. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was spoken at the first through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. He says in verse 3, in comparing salvation in Christ to Moses, he says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Yes, the punishment for rejecting this salvation is worse. Chapter 6, he said the same in chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 4. Hebrews 6, 4. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Here too he says that we cannot have these spiritual benefits, experience these spiritual benefits, fall away from them, because then it's impossible to renew to repentance, because they... Put the Son of God to open shame. Either we produce fruit and we, see, we, we receive a blessing from God, or we do not produce fruit. We produce thorns and thistles. We are worthless. We are close or near to being cursed, and we end up being burned. It's only those two. And that burning, he's talking about the eternal lake of fire kind of burning. Then we have our passage in chapter 10, but also look at chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 25. Hebrews 12, 25. Hebrews 12, 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking, 
For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, that's Moses, much less shall we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. And this expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things, in order that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. The God of the New Testament, he's saying, is a consuming fire. Yes, our God is a consuming fire. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is a consuming fire. And he says, if the people who were on Mount Sinai, who were terrified and saw that the earth shook, there was an earthquake and there was thunder, there was darkness, there was thick darkness, there was smoke, there was gloom, there was fire, and everyone was shaking and trembling at that. He says, if that happened for that, what do you think is going to happen if we reject the gospel of Christ. Because this warning is coming from heaven. Christ came from heaven to earth. The warning is coming from heaven. He says, our God is a consuming fire. Do not reject the gospel of Christ because the God who is a consuming fire will inflict that fire, fiery punishment, upon all his foes, all of his enemies, his adversaries. That's what they deserve. That is the severer punishment. He's been making this comparison constantly throughout this letter. Moses is not worse than Christ. Moses' punishment is less severe than the punishment that Christ will inflict because we reject his gospel. Now, as to the physical comparison, if we were to do the physical comparisons in terms of severity, people have understudied the New Testament because even physical punishment occurs in the New Testament. Even instant death occurs in the New Testament. For example, in Luke chapter 1, Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, did not believe what Gabriel told him and therefore immediately he was struck with muteness or dumbness. He could not speak until John, his son, was born because he did not believe the angel. That happened immediately in the New Testament. How about when in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, they lied to the apostles. When they lied to the apostles and they were confronted about it, and they even had the opportunity to tell the truth, but they lied at that time. In Acts chapter 5, in front of Peter, both times, individually, one after the other, Ananias died and Sapphira, his wife, died. Immediately, because they lied. They died instantly, right there in Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 13, there was a man who was listening to the gospel. There was a Roman official listening to the gospel also, and Paul was preaching to the Roman official, and this other man named Elymas was there, and he was doing things and saying things to undermine what Paul was preaching to this proconsul, the Roman official. And this Elymas, the magician, when he did that, Paul looked at him straight in the face and he said, 
You son of the devil, will you stop not, uh, making um, crooked the straight ways of the Lord? And then he immediately pronounced blindness on him. Immediately he became blind because of his sin, transgressing. And in 1 Corinthians 11 is another example. In 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 to 34, there, in 1 Corinthians 11, there were some Corinthians who were not repenting of their sins when they came to the Lord's table. They came to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. And Paul says that some of them were weak, some of them were sick, and some of them even died. Some of the Corinthians even died when they did that. So talk about physical punishment. It's there throughout the New Testament. And the New Testament only covers 100 years. The New Testament only covers 100 years, and we have those several examples, which are not all the examples in the New Testament. But we have those several examples in a 100-year period. But the Old Testament, it covers 3,600 years. So, of course, we're going to see more examples of physical punishment. So, this physical punishment argument is no way to judge whether God is different in the New Testament or the Old Testament. No, He's the same. Yes. He is the same from Genesis to Revelation. The same God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One gospel from Genesis to Revelation, the gospel of Christ. That's what we have in both Testaments. Now, Let's clarify further on the severer punishment of Christ. Did Christ consider that rejecting him, rejecting his gospel, is more severe? Or did he preach hell? Did he preach eternal punishment? Or was he constantly saying that there is no eternal punishment, that there is no hell? What was Christ teaching? Let's see. First example, first example is Matthew chapter 7. We, all of these examples will be in Matthew for the sake of convenience. Matthew, Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Here Jesus is basically dealing with pretenders, just like Hebrews 10 is dealing with pretenders. Making sure you repent of your sin and that you are not a pretender. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, on the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Clearly, He's saying that he never knew these people, though they had some religion in them, they did not have the true religion in them permanently. And he says, I never knew you, so depart from me. So if they depart, where are they going? We will see. Because they practice lawlessness. They don't obey Christ. In fact, they reject Christ. Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, verse 10. Matthew 8, 10. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not, not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. And I say to you, that many shall come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. 
but the sons of the kingdom shall be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This soldier, centurion, he had great faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the others from east and west, meaning all of us throughout the ages, we are all going to recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But other people who are a part of the kingdom of Satan, verse 12, but the sons of the kingdom, meaning the kingdom of Satan, the sons of the kingdom shall be cast into the outer darkness in that place. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He says there is another place where you're not going to recline at the table. You're going to be excluded from the table. You're going to depart from Christ. And there is going to be darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is a painful place. It's a horrible place. Matthew chapter 10. Matthew 10. We're still looking at the statements of Jesus. Jesus, who is incorrectly portrayed as not believing in hell and punishment and things of that nature. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Matthew 10, 28. Jesus says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Don't fear the people who will kill your body. That is, if you're persecuted and they execute you for believing in Christ, if they do that to you, don't fear them. Because even though that is bad, it's not as bad as the one who's able to kill the soul and throw soul and body in hell. So fear God. He's talking about fearing God because God can take your body and your soul together and throw them into hell. And that's not going to be a good place. Don't be thrown into hell. That's where you will be destroyed. Furthermore, we have Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. After explaining and, and interpreting, while interpreting the parable of the wheat and the tares, in the parable of the wheat and the tares, Matthew 13, wheat are true believers, tares or weeds, they look like that kind of wheat, and they, mix to, they are mixed together in the same ground. Eventually, they will be separated. And it says in verse 40, Matthew 13, 40, Therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In contrast, then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Here Jesus says that a time will come when the weeds that look like the wheat are separated. When they are separated, they'll be gathered up and burned with fire. At the end of the age, that's when Jesus returns. He will send forth his angels to carry on this task and separate the people on the earth. Those who commit lawlessness, separate them from the righteous and they will put the lawless ones into the furnace of fire. In that place, there shall be weeping and gnashing 
of T. Furthermore, Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. In this long discourse and denunciation of the scribes and the Pharisees, Matthew chapter 23. In this long discourse of Matthew chapter 23, he says the following. Matthew 23, 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Consequently, you bear witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how shall you escape the sentence of hell? There's no escape for them. How shall you escape the sentence of hell? Because these people, religious authorities, who had many religious benefits bestowed upon them, they knew the Bible, they had experiences of the Holy Spirit, like Caiaphas the high priest in John 11, he prophesied of what was going to happen to Christ and why Jesus was going to die, yet Caiaphas was an unbeliever. The Holy Spirit came upon him so that he prophesied, things like that. They had the Word of God, they had experiences of the Spirit of God, yet he calls them here serpents and brood of vipers. He calls them hypocrites in verse 29 because they weren't true believers. And he tells them that they will not escape the sentence of hell. That is the ultimate condemnation, the ultimate punishment. And furthermore, Matthew chapter 25. When the day of judgment occurs and Jesus gathers all the people of the earth, some on his right hand and some on his left hand. On his right are the sheep, on his left are the goats. The sheep and the goats. The sheep belong to him, the goats do not. Matthew chapter 25. When that time comes of judgment, this is what he will say to the sheep and the goats. Matthew 25, 41. 25, 41. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. He's saying to the people, the goats on his left, Depart from me. This is like Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Depart from me. And he calls them accursed ones under the judgment of God into the eternal fire. That's hell, the lake of fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So where the devil resides forever, where the angels, the fallen angels, the demons reside forever and ever, are also, is also the place where the wicked people, the accursed ones, the lawless ones, who don't believe in the gospel of Christ, they also are there. Verse 46, the last verse, Matthew 25, 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The goats on his left, they, they will go to eternal punishment. They are the wicked. They are the accursed ones. They are the lawless ones. They are the unbelievers. They are the reprobate, the unelect. They will go there, but the righteous into eternal life. There's either eternal life or there is eternal punishment. Those are the two outcomes. So, when Hebrews 10, 29 Back to our passage. 
When Hebrews 10.29 says, how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve? We see that it is severe based on the testimony of this letter, based on the testimony of the New Testament, based on the testimony of Christ himself, as we saw from some examples in the book of Matthew. Jesus himself taught this, that it is a severe punishment to reject him than to reject Moses. Do not reject Christ. And further, is this eternal punishment, is this severe punishment a deserved punishment? Yes. Hebrews 10.29. Hebrews 10.29 explains. It says, How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve? It's a deserved punishment. It is not an arbitrary punishment. It's not a fickle punishment. It's not a knee-jerk reaction on the part of God towards the wicked people. But it is a deserved punishment. As it says in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death. It's a deserved punishment. The people who go to hell deserve to go to hell. They are not innocent. They are not sincere. They're not genuine. They're not fun-loving. They're not uh, um, uh, naive people. They're not like that. They are guilty people. They deserve that punishment. There are no people who go to hell who are innocent, who are guilt-free. No, they are guilty people, and they deserve this punishment. That's why he says, he will, uh, do you think, um, how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve? He deserves it. People who go to hell deserve to go to hell. And he gives three reasons. The three main reasons. Notice in this verse, what are the three main reasons they go? Verse 29, now he's talking about those who have heard the gospel. These are the three reasons. For one, he says, who has trampled underfoot the Son of God. They trample underfoot the Son of God. That is, they stomp on the Son of God. It's not good to be stomped on, right? It, to be trampled upon. If you are a human and you're there on the ground, it's not good for another human or an animal like a horse to trample on you, right? It's not good. It's not right. It's a bad thing. It's a really horrible thing for that to happen. So he says that if we reject this gospel of Christ, this knowledge of the truth, we are trampling underfoot the Son of God. We're trampling underfoot the Son of God. It's not good to trample anyone underfoot. That's number one. Number two, who are we trampling? We're trampling the Son of God. Don't trample Him. It would be one thing if, if one of us were to be trampled underfoot, or if there was a criminal who deserved to be trampled underfoot, or like Joshua does in Joshua chapter 10, he takes his enemy kings and he puts his feet on their neck. Yes, they deserve to be executed. They were wicked people. They were under the death penalty in the time of Joshua. So, yes, that's fine and good. We know that wicked people deserve to be trampled underfoot, but not the Son of God, 
Not the holy one, not the pure, unblemished one, not the one who was sinless, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, nor the one who was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin, not to the holy, blameless, undefiled, pure, righteous Son of God, not him, the Son of God, the one who came from heaven, where there is no sin, where there is no wickedness, the one who descended from heaven to come and was incarnated here on our earth, who lived a life, the kind of life we live for 33 and a half years. Not this Son of God. Why would anyone have the audacity to trample the Son of God underfoot? Have they not thought about who they're, who they're dealing with? They're dealing with the Son of God. The only begotten Son of God. So whenever we hear of anything related to Christ, it should cause us to have reverence, it should cause us to have fear, we should bow down, we should put our face to the ground. This is the way we ought to think of yes. the Son of God. Yes. We ought to put our face on the ground, we should never put our feet on His neck, never, never, never trample underfoot the Son of God. So, this is the first reason why the severe punishment is deserved, because they treat the Son of God this way. No, we should never treat the Son of God that way. Secondly, what have they done? And has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. He regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. The blood of the covenant in Exodus 24, 1 to 8. In Exodus 24, the blood of the covenant was a purifying blood, the blood of the sacrificial animal. It was typifying, it was illustrating the blood of Christ, that the blood of Christ applied to us would sanctify, would purify, would cleanse us. If we have the blood of Christ sprinkled upon us, then we are holy. Is that not, after all, what he has said? In Hebrews 9, 13, for if the blood of goats, Hebrews 9, 13, if the blood of goats and the bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? There it is. The sprinkling of the blood of Christ, the blood of the covenant, Jesus' blood. If that blood is spiritually sprinkled upon us, if that is sprinkled upon us, spiritually speak, speaking, and that sanctifies us, then why would we reject that? That blood, that precious blood, the blood on the cross of Christ, that blood should never be treated as unclean as impure, as filthy, as worthless. Never should the blood of Christ be treated that way. The blood of Christ needs to be regarded as clean, as pure, as holy. Is, that is what we need. We need the payment of the death of Christ, <coughs> the punishment that he bore, the wrath of God he bore for us to be transferred to us, to be reckoned to our account, to be imputed to our account. That's what we need. Yes. We need His blood, His purity, His righteousness reckoned to our account because we are great debtors right. because of our sin. We need His blood towards us. 
And only those who would think of the blood of Christ as unclean would say, away with it, do away with it. No, I don't want it. Go away from me. I don't want anything to do with it. I don't want his blood. Don't talk to me about the blood of Christ. I don't need his blood. I don't want his blood. Go away. Only a wicked person would do that. Only a wicked person would think of the blood of Christ that way. Now, when it says a clarification here, it says, the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. How in, and in what sense was this person sanctified by this blood? Was he sanctified in the full and eternal true sense of the word? Was this person who has rejected this blood of the covenant, was he sanctified in that sense? Or was he sanctified in the temporary sense? in the temporary sense of the word. I believe he means in the temporary sense. We know he means temporary because he says in verse 26, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains the sacrifice for sins. This is somebody who temporarily has been with the people of God, who temporarily has embraced the true doctrines of the Bible who temporarily says, yes, I believe that the Bible is true and all of its teachings are right and good. I and they temporarily believe in this gospel of grace. Temporarily. That's what I think he means by they were temporarily sanctified. Because while they are with the people of God, these apostates who are temporary, while they are with the people of God, temporarily the blood of Christ helps them. Temporarily, the blood of Christ guides them in the right direction. For example, if there is a drunkard, and let's say typically he, he drinks at all kinds of times, uh, throughout the week, all times of day, and for a short time, he comes to the church service. And maybe he might come to the two or three or four meetings the church has during the week. And while he's coming temporarily there, he's not at the bar getting drunk. Or he's not at home uh, guzzling the alcohol. He's not at home doing things like that or at the bar doing that. He's not there. So for a short time, a temporary period, while he's coming to church, he has cleaned himself up. He, he, has, have, he has practiced some self-control, enough self-control to maintain sober-mindedness while he is there in the church meetings. Has he not temporarily benefited from the true teaching? Has he not temporarily been sanctified in some sense from the drunkenness? And take any sin for that matter. Well, I'm just using one example of drunkenness, but it could be any sin. That temporarily there is relief from it, but there isn't permanent relief from it. There isn't permanent fellowship with the body of Christ. When it is temporary, that person has temporarily benefited. We might use another example. Another example, the common example, is Judas Iscariot. We have spoken of this before in past weeks. Judas Iscariot was among the disciples of Christ. He was one of the twelve disciples. Temporarily, while he was with Christ, he was endowed with the Holy Spirit. Temporarily, while he was with Christ, he was able to cast out demons. He was able to heal the sick. He was empowered to preach the true gospel. He preached the true gospel. 
when he went out and about among the people, he didn't preach the false gospel. He cast out demons. He healed people of diseases. He did this. Matthew chapter 10 explains this. Matthew 10, 10 starting at verse 1, it explains this quite clearly. It mentions Judas by name, and it mentions the things that Judas and the other disciples did in that chapter. Judas did that. Isn't that what happened in Matthew chapter 7 also? Among the people generally. Judas is a specific example, and people generally in Matthew chapter 7. It says that on the day of judgment, they will say, Lord, Lord. So they're calling him by the right name. They say, Lord, Lord. Did we not prophesy in your name? Isn't that the right thing? Yes. Did we not cast out demons in your name? Isn't that right? Yes, they did. Did we not perform many miracles in your name? Yes, they did the right thing. But then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. See, temporarily, they benefited by the grace of God, the Spirit of God, the Word of God, the blood of Christ, temporarily, not in the permanent, eternal, true, lasting sense, but temporarily they did. That was Judas Iscariot, but Jesus in Matthew 7 just says that there are other people like that. He says many will say that they did things like that. Many people will say they were endowed, uh, or they will call him Lord, and they would have been endowed with these benefits, spiritual benefits, but they never knew Christ, and Christ never knew them. And in Hebrews, he has given us a specific example. In Hebrews chapter 12, one more specific example, individual example, is in Hebrews 12, verse 14, 14 to 17. Pursue peace with all and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. So there he's saying, generally, it is possible for that to happen, to come short of the grace of God, not to pursue peace, not to pursue sanctification or holiness, and because of this, many be defiled. 16, the specific example, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Esau, who was Esau? Jacob and Esau were in the same family, in the family of Isaac and Rebekah. They heard the truth there in the family of Isaac and Rebekah, in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 25. 25 and 26, we can read of Jacob and Esau. In those chapters, they were both raised in the same family. Jacob was an unbeliever until the point that God converted Jacob in Jacob's life. Then he became a believer because God converted Jacob at a certain point. But Esau was an unbeliever from birth to death, from womb to tomb. He was an unbeliever. Esau was. Yet he was raised in the family of Isaac and Rebekah. And he heard about eternal life. He heard about repentance. 
And here it says he wanted to inherit the blessing. He wanted the blessing, but he did not want repentance because he found no place for repentance. And even he put on a sham because he sought for it with tears. He sought for the blessing with tears, but he didn't want repentance. He didn't want to turn away from sin. He practiced lawlessness. And this is one person to whom Jesus will say those words, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So let's not be like Judas or Esau or any number of individuals in the Bible or any of these groups in the Bible who may hear the word of God, but reject the word of God. This is the kind of person he has in mind when he says he regards as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Temporarily, they had these blessings, but not permanently. And finally, Hebrews 10, 29, the third reason that the individual deserves a severer punishment. The third reason in Hebrews 10, 29 is that he has insulted the spirit of grace. He has insulted the spirit of grace. Who is the spirit of grace? The spirit of grace is the gracious spirit, the Holy Spirit. This is the spirit of grace. The spirit of grace is the one who explains grace to us, the gospel of grace to us. The spirit of grace is the one who is working through the word of God to produce a child of God. The Spirit of grace is the one who says, these are the abundant blessings that await those who believe in the gospel of Christ, who turn from sin and believe in Christ. The Spirit of grace is the one who applies the things that Jesus has done on the cross to the individual. He is the one that makes it effectual from the cross to the stony-hearted person. He is the one that changes the stony heart. The Spirit of grace graciously changes and converts people from being wicked to righteous, from being unbelieving to believing, to being unrepentant to be, being repentant. The Spirit of grace is the gracious Spirit who does all this. The Spirit of grace, if we reject Christ, we're also rejecting the work of the Spirit of grace, whether in our hearing or in our experience. We are rejecting this spirit of grace in our life. And if we reject the spirit of grace, here he calls it an insult. An insult. Why would anyone want to insult a great benefactor? Why would anyone want to insult one who owns the universe? Why would anyone want to insult one who is open-handedly showing you and explaining to you everything that's good, perfect, righteous, eternal, and that will benefit you individually. But he says, there are people who insult the spirit of grace. The spirit of grace who holds out salvation, who says salvation is in Christ, who says eternal life is being with the Lord forever, seeing Christ face to face, and being like him, for we shall see him just as he is. The Spirit of grace is the one who declares all these things. And yet, the person, there are people who insult the Spirit of grace. And how do they insult? Like he has been saying. They walk away from it. They say, oh, that's not for me. 
Or they pretend, they pretend to be followers, but they're not true followers. There are various ways in which people insult the spirit of grace. And he says, there is no forgiveness. There is no salvation. This is explained in Mark chapter Mark chapter 3. In Mark chapter 3, remember, this common passage people read, the scribes and the Pharisees are confronting Christ and they are accusing Christ of being possessed by Satan. So they're rejecting the gospel of Christ because they attribute Christ to Satan or the gospel of Christ to Satan. So he says, he says in Mark 3, Verse 28, 28 to 30. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. There it is. They treat the blood of Christ as unclean by attributing all of his work and his words to an unclean spirit, meaning to a demon, to Satan. And he says, this is blaspheming or insulting, slandering, speaking evil of the Holy Spirit. And the one who does this never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. No forgiveness, never and it is an eternal sin, meaning there is an eternal consequence, the severer punishment, an eternal punishment. So for these three reasons, those who hear must not turn away, but must embrace, must believe, must repent of sin and believe in the gospel of Christ because the one who rejects deserves eternal punishment. They will have trampled the Son of God underfoot they will have regarded the blood of the covenant unclean and they will have insulted the spirit of grace. Let's not be like that. Let's be those who receive the free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's have faith in Christ. Yes. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.